Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 412, The Road to True Mercy. This week, we're going to pick up with part two of Steve's teaching on the Beatitude, Blessed are the Merciful. Review last week just hit some of the highlights, uh, but you can get it if you go back on the family page and scroll down to a week ago. Uh, mercy is at the very center of who God is, therefore, uh, His entire creation reflects His mercy. And I think it is all too easy, maybe especially with this beatitude to read it rather superficially. Uh, we read it and think, oh, be kind, be nice, be a good person. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who is the perfect reflection, revelation of the Father, he lived and moved in mercy and compassion because he is mercy. Um, Moses asked to see, he said, show me your glory, Lord, in, in Exodus 34. And, and as he passed by, God revealed his character, his essence. And the scripture says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. Because it is God who holds all of creation together, in fact, every breath that I take, every breath that you take, uh, is a declaration of his continuing, uh, unwavering mercy toward all that he's made. And I challenged you last week to begin to talk to him, ask him to reveal his mercy that is all around you. Um, his life is in you and me. Therefore, the mercy of God is always available as a life source. Always. We talked about mercy and us. Um, that not only is it available for us to, to see God's mercy toward us, but to see and experience His mercy in others. We talked a little bit about how Jesus quoted Hosea 6.6. 6, and he said, don't learn what this means. I desire mercy, eleos, and not sacrifice, not religious activity. And uh, we said that, that Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, Luke says this, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So it, the religious leaders weren't, weren't, so upset with what Jesus said about the outcasts and the poor, it said he actually went and lived his life with them. I said to you last week, to be merciful, we must go beyond kind thoughts about the outcast and the poor. To be merciful is to identify, to associate, and to be with the outcast and the poor. We looked at different aspects of mercy, and I won't go through that right now. The second half, this is a very balanced beatitude, the merciful will receive mercy. And, and very quickly, I just pointed out six ways in which we receive mercy. One is, it's reciprocal. What people receive from you and I tends to be what they give back to us. Mercy, uh, kindness, lack of judgment, forgiveness. Secondly, I said the gratitude of those who receive mercy from you will go on with them into eternal life. 
I think we just found out I wasn't plugged in. Uh, the gratitude of those who receive mercy from you, that gratitude is going to carry on for all eternity. Uh, Galatians 6, 7, whatever a man sows, he will reap. It's a universal principle. If we sow mercy, that's what we'll reap. Jesus in this beatitude is telling us about our future eternal life. Our mercy now will lead to great and ultimate blessing. I think I'm going to move this down again now that we're plugged in. Um, but it's not just future. Jesus, I believe, in this beatitude is telling us that it's a blessing to live mercifully. It's a blessing for us right now. Um, so tonight, that's a real quick overview. <coughs> but I want to continue, as I said, with part two. And the first point is an obvious one. God tells us to show mercy. Micah 6.8, he's shown you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Uh, it's not negotiable. Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And to, to varying degrees, all of us know a number of the many scriptures where God tells us to love and to live uh, with mercy and justice. Um, we talked last week, I, I quoted a lot of church fathers, and very much of their emphasis was on acts of mercy, that, that it was about almsgiving. It was uh, reflecting the early church's reputation to care for for people in the streets to, to care for uh, abandoned babies and on and on. Um, but the problem is this. It's not for me to tell you God tells us to be merciful. I think we all know that. The problem is what we talked briefly about last week. Letting this truth, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Letting this truth go deep into who we are. Getting somehow beyond agreement. You know, it is so easy to keep the Beatitudes at a safe distance. We as a church, the church has done it to a large degree for a long time. You know, as I've really pressed into this Beatitude for a second week... It's pushed me back to the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's been a fair amount of mourning going on inside me this week. As I've looked at, as I've looked at what it means to be merciful. So let me unpack those feelings a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the road to what I'm going to call true mercy beyond niceness, beyond conceptual mercy. So how does it get established in my heart? How does God begin to call forth in me that I would be a merciful man? Well, the first thing is brokenness. This is the first step on the road to true mercy. 
Reading from uh, Jesus' parable um, in Luke 18, 9-14, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax gatherer, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven. He was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The road to true mercy must begin with me looking at my own weakness and failure with great and painful honesty. It is so easy for me to make excuses for my own sin and failure, even to seek to ignore it. It's especially easy when when nobody else has seen it. But God has. He knows what's in my heart and mind. I've been thinking about this this week. (coughs) Excuse me. In John 3, when when Nicodemus and Jesus met in the dark of night, Jesus said that famous saying, you must be born again or born from above. Most, most translations say born again. Both are correct. To be born again is not just to pray a prayer and now you're in. It's so much deeper than that. To be born again includes being what the word says, the phrase born again. It means being reformed. And I'm convinced that the only way this reformation happens is through brokenness. So the first step on the road to true mercy is brokenness. The second one Excuse me. The second one is transparency. In Luke 7, at the end of Luke 7, there's the story that we read last week in the in our house church, which, by the way, if you've just come on, I encourage you near the end of this teaching um, in the chat box, there'll be a link to join us for this Zoom meeting. And during it last week, somebody read this story of the immoral woman, which is just a polite phrase for a prostitute, who who went into Simon the Pharisee's house and she broke through and, and everybody was horrified and she didn't care and she wept and wept and wept at his feet. Well, Jesus, all this is going on. Simon especially, but all his all his religious friends and social upper-class friends are horrified that this woman is there and that Jesus is not pushing her away. And you know the story. But let me point something out. Jesus says, Simon, I've got a story to tell you. And he talks about 
someone who had a large debt and someone who had a small debt, and they were both forgiven. And uh, when they were forgiven, Jesus said, which one would love the most? And in 743, Simon answered, I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus agreed. Then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. You didn't take time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven all her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. And now listen to this. I really like this translation. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. The one who knows he or she is forgiven much, loves much. The only way for us to live giving true mercy away is to first receive it. You can only give away what you've got. This again takes me back to how important it is for us to just spend time in his presence, just quiet, contemplating in his presence, receiving, because you can only give away what you've got. The only way to deeply receive mercy is to experientially know our need for mercy. When we really know that, when we're like the, the tax gatherer who's beating his chest, when we know how much we've uh, been forgiven, then we love much. See, Simon lived in the cocoon of religion. He created uh, a system for himself that he felt justified. He felt, I'm a pretty good guy. I obey the rules. I follow the law. It was, it was a cocoon of religion. And the result was that at that very moment... <laughs> The woman knew Jesus, and Simon only knew about Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. The third step, <coughs> excuse me, is failure. We all know the classic example in the Gospels of failure. It's Peter's denial. And uh, it's in all the Gospels. And as I was reading, I'm in Luke this week, and I was reading Luke's account, I can feel Peter's pain of discovery, uh, especially clearly because of the warning that Jesus gave him uh, just before his betrayal. I'm going to read from the... Passion Translation, Luke 22, 31 to 34. Peter, my dear friend, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Satan has demanded to come and sift you like wheat and test your faith. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that you would stay faithful to me no matter what comes. Remember this, after you have turned back to me and have been restored Make it your life mission to strengthen the faith of your brothers. 
Now, we are confronted with that word yet again, paradox. It was Jesus, it, rather it was Peter's failure. It, that was the very thing that marked him for the rest of his life and qualified him for his calling. The, the deepest failure that he felt, you can see it in, in his epistles, you can see it in the way Mark is constructed, which is generally considered to have been dictated to him by Peter. You can see in the construction this deep, deep sense of failure. He never forgot it. But it was that very failure that qualified him for his calling. Now listen to this from, from uh, Mark 16. Uh, hmm. The angel had encountered the three, well, the three women had encountered the angel and uh, in the garden. And the angel sends the three women back to the disciples with a very specific message. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You see, this was an act of mercy and goodness on Jesus' part. So that Peter, who was going to be the shepherd of the church, might learn from his own failure how he ought to have mercy on others. Tell the disciples and Peter, who thinks he's no longer included, who thinks he's disqualified. That was an act of great compassion, great mercy, but it also was an example to Peter. This is how you lead my church. It's only through our failure, sometimes even our humiliation, that we're able to let go of the securities of our false self. We all have a false self, the, the mask we put forward, the, what we try to hold ourselves together with. And, and it's only when we're confronted with our failure that we're able to begin to let go of the securities of the false self. And most of those securities are common to all of us. They may have different weight or emphases. But their power, um, the security of reputation, the security of possessions, of income. So, <sighs> failure is the only way to begin to lose that, to let go of that. Therefore, failure is central to the thing that Jesus said more than anything else, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it, whoever lets go with all the pain and the soul-searching and the failure, whoever lets go of the, of the false self, that's the one who finds life. So, just to review this, giving you some steps, and they're very personal for me. The first on the road to true mercy is brokenness. The second one is transparency. The third one is failure. And now we come to the fourth one that is very fresh for me. <clears throat> very fresh for me this week, just as I've been being quiet and thinking, and praying. And that is the story of the wheat and the tares. 
you know it from Matthew uh, 13. And um, you know, the church fathers, as I've taught you before, insisted that the scriptures carried uh, various depths of meaning. They're multi-layered. One of the early church fathers, Origen, said that if we only understand the literal meaning of a verse, then we haven't yet even seen that verse. So Jesus tells this parable, it's a very, very well-known one, uh, of the wheat and the tares. And most of us know that it's a story about the coming judgment uh, for the tares, the, we, uh, the weeds, the tares when they will be separated from the righteous wheat. And this is a clear meaning to the parable. Absolutely. In fact, Jesus made this clear when he, after he told it, he then turned to the disciples and explained it. And, um, and the part that, that really sticks out is when in the parable, the workers say, excuse me, do you want us to go and gather up all the weeds? No, the landowner said. If you pull out the weeds, you might uproot the wheat at the same time. You must allow them both to grow together until the time of harvest. At that time, I'll tell my harvesters to make sure they gather the weeds first and tie them all in bundles to be burned. Then they will harvest the wheat and uh, put it into my barn. Um, further down, when he's explaining this to them, in verse 41, he says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything, not everyone, everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. So this parable has really challenged me this week. Why is that? Historically, I have always read this and applied this parable to out there, to them. Um, you know, we've heard teaching on there. There's there's wheat and tares in in the church congregation. There's there's mixture everywhere. You see, if I apply this parable to me, and not out there to them then it quickly addresses my reluctance to address the paradoxes that are within me. Let me explain that. See, I am made up of both wheat and tares. And I don't want my weaknesses, my failings. Couldn't I serve Jesus better without sin in my life? Lord, can't you gather all the, the weeds that are in me? That just makes sense. But this parable says to me, no, your failure, your brokenness, your weaknesses are a part of you. And they're the very things I use to reform you. See, I don't like mixture. 
I don't like this paradox in my life. Frankly, it frightens me. And if I let it, this paradox, these tears in my life, that he will remove later, he will remove in his time, not mine, it can greatly discourage me. So I was thinking about Hebrews 12.1, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Fix your eyes on him. Trust him in this beatitude, that the merciful will receive mercy. He, <clears throat> he first confronted me with this, although I wasn't thinking about weed and tares. But he first confronted me about this in the spring of 1981. I used to get up early and go across the hall. We had a little house out in the country. And uh, I'd just spend time with the Lord. And, and I've, I've referred to it in the past. It was a time when, when my roots were going down deeper and deeper in Him. But one day... I just had a wonderful time in his presence, probably about an hour. I don't remember exactly, but it was usually that. But it was I was so aware of his great love and great presence. And just minutes later, I was so angry. I was shouting at my wife from outside in the driveway. And then I was so deeply deeply troubled because I was confronted in a way that for the first time by my recollection that really got my attention. But the reality is there's wheat and tares in my life. Our willingness to embrace our own contradictions, our insecurities, our inconsistencies will make us more compassionate, more patient. Be merciful as your Father is merciful, which we talked about last week from Luke 6, is not a command, it's a promise. It's trusting Him with the wheat and the tares. The fifth step on this journey is suffering. Now, I'm only going to say a few things about suffering because it's a huge topic. We could talk about that for several nights. But let me just make a few brief points about why suffering is another step on the road to becoming a merciful person. First of all, Jesus himself learned through suffering. That's Hebrews 5.8. Secondly, as I've shared again and again, his self-emptying, canonic love, he fully revealed the heart of the Trinity through his self-emptying, through his full embrace of suffering at the cross. Thirdly, this is a verse I've been thinking about for a couple of days. It's Isaiah 63, 9. In all their suffering, he, that's the Lord, in all their suffering, he also suffered. And he personally rescued them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them through all the years. He does not hold us at arm's length when we suffer. 
He embraces us. And He enters into our suffering. He is not repulsed by it. He's not critical of our mistakes. He embraces us. This week's episode is brought to you by Impact Nations. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, isn't every episode brought to you by Impact Nations? Yeah, sort of, but usually we're zoomed in on one particular aspect of the Impact Nations operation. This week, I wanted to talk to you kind of on a zoomed out level. Most people on the street are going to tell you that 2020 has been a lousy year. They can't wait to flip the calendar and move on. And I get that. I really do. But I wanted you to know that, in fact, 2020 has been the most remarkable year in Impact Nations history by a whole bunch of metrics. Let me just give you a few. Uh, as of this moment, as I'm recording this, we are at 1,346,360 meals that have been distributed during the COVID pandemic. Uh, that's We started doing that on March 26th. Uh, this year, we will have had 507 students receive either skills and or business training uh, in various countries around the world. Uh, right now, as I speak, there are uh, over 500 households that are receiving clean water in two different villages in Uganda uh, for a total of over 880 households worldwide that will have received clean water this year. Nope, forget that. I just realized there are a whole bunch of people that we did disaster relief for in... Dominican Republic earlier this year when they got hit with a terrible storm. So probably actually that number is well over a thousand households receiving clean water that is effectively a lifetime supply of clean water with the water filters we use. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, we found out that over 200 people were baptized in the Philippines as a result of our relief efforts. Uh, 450 children were rescued from the brick factories and are now getting enrolled in school. These are the types of things we're seeing happen in 2020 at Impact Nations. None of that would be possible without the amazing donors of Impact Nations. So the reason I'm telling you this is because I wanted to tell you about an opportunity that's come up. We are just beginning our Double Your Impact campaign. Uh, we have had uh, some friends of the ministry have pledged $60,000 in matching gifts. That means that every time you give towards this fund, this Double Your Impact campaign, your gift is going to be matched dollar for dollar up to a maximum of $60,000. So you can do the math. If we uh, have the $60,000 in matching gifts plus your gifts coming in up to a maximum of $60,000, that's $120,000 that we're going to be able to use next year to get even more amazing things done. And I know God has even more incredible stuff for us uh, in store. So I wanted to let you know that if you go to impactnations.com slash give right now, uh, you can read more about just all that Impact Nations is called to do around the world, learn how you can participate in that. Uh, and again, your gift is going to double in size immediately when you give today. That's impactnations.com slash give. And now back to the podcast. Fourth thing is that embracing suffering makes us softer. It makes us more compassionate, therefore more merciful. Remember last week we talked a little bit about Hosea 6.6 that Jesus quoted, I desire mercy and not sacrifice to religious activity. This is what I said and I want to say it again. The Lord doesn't want us to be morally tougher, but mercifully softer. So those are five steps that kind of occurred to me this week out of my own journey, perhaps, 
on the road to mercy. Let's talk a little bit about um, the opposite of mercy is judgment. And uh, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in in, uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, Jesus said, Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. I think a lot of us know that passage. It's really interesting, isn't it? This, do not judge so that you will not be judged. It's, it's a parallel. It's a mirror. It's a reverse of this fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Now, he's not saying don't weigh things. Uh, much of the New Testament teaches us how to carefully uh, weigh things. So what's he saying? Jesus is telling us, Avoid condemnation. Something else I've been thinking a lot about this week. I'm letting you into my prayer life. I was out walking and thinking about this. When I condemn a person, you know how I do it? I exclude them. I exclude them from my thoughts. I exclude them from my heart. I exclude them from my life. I just exclude them. He says, don't do that. Be merciful. To not judge, to not condemn, is a plea from Jesus to live a generous life. A generous life. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. This is a mark of the countercultural community of the kingdom that Jesus sets before us. Just one more point about judgment. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. The only antidote to judgment, the only antidote that I know of to judgment is turning my heart toward Christ's mercy to me. This is a concrete decision. And sometimes I make it and sometimes I fail to make it. But when I recognize judgment rising up in me, I must, at that moment, choose to focus on Christ's mercy. At that moment, I must go back to Luke 18 like the tax gatherer. He who is forgiven much, loves much. The last thing I want to talk about tonight, we've looked individually, I guess I've looked individually, at mercy. I want to broaden this a little bit, a little more corporately. If we're going to be authentic in talking about mercy, we have to recognize that we there needs to be a response to s- systemic injustice. Ahmad Arbery here in America, has been in the news for the last week. And I'm sure he's been in the news. Some of you are in Australia right now and Canada and South America. And I'm sure you know it was yet again a young black man who who was shot down. You know, I was in a Zoom meeting two days ago and uh, as we began to talk about our feelings, I heard a black man say, I don't think I have any confidence left that things will ever change. 
that hit me pretty hard. If we're going to be merciful, we cannot ignore systemic injustice. Systemic. Systemic. To deny the systemic injustice against all kinds of minorities is to choose blindness. I expect that very few, if any, of you who are listening tonight would deny that in every one of our nations there is injustice that systemically injures and restricts and opposes minorities. This is a part of mercy we don't talk about enough. We cannot talk about Christ's call for his followers to be merciful without addressing the issue of injustice. Otherwise, we're back where we started to reading the Beatitudes in a nice, safe, distant way that, that we, we define mercy as, as being uh, uh, somehow nice. By doing that, it's like we neuter the very Beatitude we give a safe definition. Mercy and love and forgiveness are all tied together. We talked about that last week. The opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. I've asked Christina to come and read a poem written by a friend of hers, someone who's traveled with her uh, to Uganda. So just to be sure that you are full. Technical glitch. Um, just to be sure that you know, uh, there was a, an innocent 25-year-old man out jogging, and two men shot him down. They thought he was someone else, or they thought he was a criminal. And uh, this friend of mine, Renee, uh, is very remarkable. She's still in her 30s. She actually has seven children, four birth children, Caucasian, and three adopted um, black children, uh, two from Africa, one from America. And after this shooting, this was her poem. I almost didn't say anything, even though it's a tragedy, an atrocity of the highest degree, and yet I almost didn't say anything. Not because I don't care, but because I'm not black. And I don't want to seem tone deaf since I don't get it. I mean, not really. After all, I was born into privilege with my white skin and my white family and my white circle. So how in the world can I pretend like I am able to identify or relate or understand what it's like to be conditioned, to be terrified, to be traumatized, to be a trigger, to be questioned, to be suspect, to be doubted, to expect the judgy eyes and the presumptive glances? What are the chances? High. They're ridiculously high. That is when your skin is brown. No, I haven't been treated that way or walked that path or felt that shame or felt that pain or felt that rage because I have privilege. I didn't earn it. I didn't win it. I didn't choose it. I was just given it. This privilege that I own and so often take for granted, I forget about it even. 
This privilege, like it's a key on my ring that unlocks so many things, but it's not heavy, so I don't feel it. And since I don't have to heft it, I don't know that I wield it. And then suddenly I see another story, another senseless story of blood spilled on the ground, a man gunned down, all because of the shade of his skin made him seem shady. And the guilt creeps in at my lack of being able to truly understand anything like this down to my core, to a place where it wrenches my gut and checks my spirit and grieves my heart until it's upheaved into an appropriate turmoil. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the lack thereof. So what's a Jesus-loving white girl to do? Pray? Yes. Mourn? Yes. Be uncomfortable? For the love? Yes. But I can't stop there. I must empower my privilege to make it work for others, for them, for my brown-skinned brothers and sisters, and for my own brown-skinned children, to employ it in such a way that my privilege becomes their defense, their advocate, their advantage, that my privilege would put me to use, to, to use, to love my neighbor, especially when my neighbor looks nothing like me. Because you know what, world? We're not supposed to look exactly like each other. We're supposed to look like our creator, and we all do. Magio Dei, made in his image, every single one of us a unique reflection of him. But that multifaceted brilliance can't shine if it's one-dimensional. That's just nonsensical. So I'll have your back like I'd want you to have mine, and I'll stand with you, beside you, behind you, and I'll take my key and use it to unlock the doors that should already be open anyway. Ignorance isn't bliss, it's delusion. Division isn't order, it's confusion. Silence isn't golden, it's collusion. And I am so sorry that I almost didn't say anything. Powerful. So let me remind you of the context. The church cannot be indifferent in the church, if it will be merciful, it must respond to systemic injustice. The church is to be a prophetic people, pointing to the righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom of heaven. That's Romans fourteen seventeen. I've told you, those who followed me on this broadcast, Multiple times I've told you there are more than 2,000 verses in the scripture about justice. God tells us repeatedly that he loves justice and he hates injustice. Now, yesterday, <coughs> yesterday I, uh, I read a passage from Amos in the message. And many of us will find it quite shocking. Just to give you a little background, Amos prophesied in the 8th century B.C. Uh, in the northern territory of the Ten Tribes. Amos's message stands as one of the most powerful voices ever to challenge hypocrisy and injustice. 
He boldly indicts kings, priests, and leaders. He stresses the importance and the divine origin of the prophetic word, that one must either heed that word in its entirety or, or suffer its disappearance. Religion without justice, he says, is an affront to the God of Israel. So, with that background, not surprisingly, neither Amos nor Eugene Peterson, who translated his version, the message, pull any punches. So here goes. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. I can hardly imagine stronger words. Now, if the church can hear the Lord speaking to her through Amos, what he's saying is not that he, he's against worship. You, you can read the whole book to know that's not true. But what he's saying is that we need authentic, heartfelt, tangible mercy and justice. Remember I told you last week that real mercy is always active. If we do those things, then our worship will be authentic. Isaiah said very similar things in, in Isaiah 58, which is what we reference with, with our main feeding program. We call it the Isaiah 58 funding. The church cannot be indifferent. I nearly didn't say anything, as we heard. The church can neither ignore nor politicize injustice. Back to Micah 6.8. He's already shown you, O man, what the Lord requires of you. He's already shown you. When we read the Gospels, if you're like me, <clears throat> we always identify with uh, the first century Jews. We see ourselves as the ones who have been slapped and have to turn the other cheek, or the ones who have to carry the burden uh, an extra mile, uh, the soldier's load. But, but my friends, we're not an oppressed people like first century Israel was. We're the ones who live in relative comfort and safety. To a large degree, we control our own time and our own destiny. We are not the Jewish people in the Gospels. We are the Romans. We are the Romans. If injustice in our nation is systemic, then it's more about us than them. 
As we often say, Jesus ran into the darkness. He didn't stand back at a safe distance and point a finger at the darkness. He entered into the darkness of others' lives and he spoke truth to power, even at the cost of his life. Daniel spent all of his adult life uh, in Babylon, first under the Chaldeans and then the Medes. And Daniel, there's much to learn in, in what he wrote. But he did not point a finger at the darkness of Israel. He didn't say, what's wrong with you guys? Instead, he identified with it. He embraced Israel's culpability. Listen to this from Daniel 9. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Now this is a man who prayed three times a day. This is a man who paid a price. And yet, he didn't point a finger at the darkness. He embraced Israel's culpability. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his command. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. And then he declares who God is. Verse 9, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, even though we have rebelled against him. Though Daniel was not personally responsible, he identified with the sin of the nation. The entire prayer is a call to do mercy and a recognition that we need mercy. Remember, we can only give away what we've got. So, to finish this, I've become convinced that to truly desire to be merciful we must be willing to go on a long, difficult journey. It's one that will require great honesty. It's one that will require us embracing the pain of self-discovery, of a willingness to acknowledge the tears in our lives. Mercy requires great patience with ourselves, with others, even with the Lord. For me, this fifth beatitude has been so entwined with the second one, blessed are those who mourn, but also with the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who are desperate for justice and righteousness. These beatitudes... I cannot read them at a safe distance. I can't read them comfortably because they not only invite me into the, the lengthy metamorphosis of death and resurrection, if I will treat them with the seriousness that I believe Christ intends, these beatitudes require this metamorphosis of me. Even more, 
This beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It reaches out beyond me to tell us, the church, the church of all who will truly follow Christ, that mercy must stand up in the midst of systemic injustice, that the church must be a prophetic voice rising above indifference in order to speak truth to power. This beatitude cuts deep. It cuts deep in my own life. And it cuts deep, I believe, to the church. Mercy is not a nice feeling. Mercy is a committed action. Whether it's feeding the hungry, whether it's choosing to extend mercy when what we are wanting to feel is judgment, whether it is standing because of mercy, not indignation, standing against injustice. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I'm asking, Holy Spirit, for you to strip away the layers. I suddenly remember what I read earlier this week. Jeremiah, circumcise your heart to strip away everything that protects us, that, that neutralizes, that minimizes the power of what you have said in these Beatitudes. Lord God, I'm asking for you to do a deep work in me, in each of us, but Lord, in your church. Mercy triumphs. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Take us deep, Lord. Holy Spirit, continue to rest on us throughout this evening. In Jesus' name. Well, that concludes this week's episode of the Impact Nations podcast. But if you've been challenged by this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, I would encourage you, be sure to tune in again next week. Uh, we're going to have guest Brian Zond really help us unpack what it means to be merciful in this day and age. Give us some really practical ideas for that. Uh, in the meantime, do be sure to check out impactnations.com give to learn how you can double your impact today. Thanks. Have a great week.